Welcome to the bonus. My name's Phineas Meir. Joining me in the studio, as he normally does, is Raphael Kaleb. Well, Hi. Finn, it's a rambling prologist that's joining you in the studio tonight. How are you doing? I am well. I will get into what a rambling virologist means another time, but for now, um, I should just give a, tri- a trigger warning. Tonight, we're g- going to be t- talking about. Uh, sexual abuse, violence, and neglect of people with disability. So if that if that is triggering for you or it's not really uh, something you want to listen to, then maybe this is not a show, show for you. So um, maybe come back next ta- time. Which is the 29th of March for us. There we go. Um, so what's coming up on today's show, Raphael? We're, the Boldness is talking with Samantha Connor, and I think one of the best ways to describe Samantha is as a disability advocate. And a bit of a rebel rouser as well. We'll throw that into the mix. Um, and uh, I think we're fortunate enough now to hear, have Sam on the line. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very well. Now... It's um, unfortunate that the um, very unfortunate that the government has recently decided that that the 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 royal commission into to uh, abuse, neglect, and um, violence of people with disabilities is not gonna, not going to happen. What do you what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's probably a bit beyond unfortunate and into the land of scandalous, really, that, um, you know, that you have this whopping 300-and-something page report that gets ignored for um, over 17 months, and then when it does get responded to, is you know, lightly responded to with a no. And why... why, I mean, they're saying that the, the NDIS safeguards will be... a a cure all for um for this so there's there's no need to there's no need to have a royal commission because the NDIS safeguards will cover everything is that firstly what are what are the NDIS safeguards that are proposed and secondly will they will they actually uh help this situation um, well, there's a few issues. The NDIS safeguards are only for the people who will be in the NDIS, and that's about 460 people with disability. But, of course, that only protects people um, around service settings, and it doesn't protect them around the other settings that the Royal Commission covered. 
So, you, you know, institutional settings also means schools, it means jails, it means uh, families, it means a whole bunch of things. So the idea that it's just disability service settings is a problem. The fact that only, um, you know, 460,000 people are covered is also a problem. And um, the fact that the, uh, the the safeguarding framework itself has been subject to a whole bunch of criticism by people who say, um, you know, it's not a great document and it um, weighs heavily on the side of risk and protecting service providers and not necessarily on keeping people with disabilities safe. Well, Samantha, I just want to do some maths very, very quickly here. So we're talking about 460,000 people with a disability uh, would be covered under the NDIS, um, and don't and the federal government says they don't need a federal uh, royal commission, but that um, I think is about one percent of people with a disability, isn't it? Or is yeah, it two percent of people with disability? So ninety-eight uh, percent of people it, wouldn't be covered. Well, the the NDIS only goes to age sixty-five for a start. You know, so yeah. it's only people who are two age 65 and as you know elder abuse is a huge problem and people don't stop having a disability when they hit 65 and um, a disability is also a, uh, you know, a condition acquired by ageing so I think you know, the stats are something like 90% of all 90 year olds have a disability so there's also people who are um, very at risk of abuse because they, you know, they're not eligible for support. You might have, you know, for example, a mild intellectual disability or an autism spectrum disorder, and you're one of the largest groups who might be at risk and have been at risk in in the past. So it's a huge concern. What, what could reading? What did? What did? Because you were heavily involved with uh, people with disabilities, Australia. Around the Senate com- committee, what, what sort of what were your findings? What did you, what, what's 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 happening out there in the disability sector? There's there's probably a, a fairly solid group of um, grassroots um, anti disability violence um, activists, I guess, out there, who um, you know my role of, over the last five or so years has been to research and map in the stories, I guess, from coroner's reports and public reports. And, you know, we have a team of people who help us with that. And, um, you know, it's it's astounding that, you know, people like us and um, people like the peak bodies, people with disability Australia, women with disability Australia, you know, really gave some strong submissions as well as providers, as well as families, as well as people with disability themselves about um, the types of abuse people have experienced. And, you know, this includes murders and rapes and quite abhorrent crimes. And um, there's just been a, a zero response. I think the Senate, uh, the senators who are involved in the report have also um, expressed their extreme disappointment in the response. Oh, Samantha, let's say when a person with a disability is the victim and is abused and decides to press charges... Um, are you able to comment about what might happen with a person with a disability um, in a courtroom, for example, if they are cross-examined? In most states of Australia, there's some really significant issues around access to justice. So 
for example, you know, if you're found not to be competent or you can't communicate in a way that other people do, you're not able to um, to testify in a court of law. Um, there's a there's a whole range of issues. You know, you quite often people are not believed is one of the biggest issues. Um, when people are experiencing um, abuse in disability service settings, you know the um, provider has a bit of a vested interest not to to bring those those issues to the police. And um, there's also the issue that disability violence is quite often treated as an administrative error. You know that that you know something's gone wrong for the provider rather than the person who's been abused. So there's a whole bunch of issues about getting to court in the first place. Um, police have got issues with understanding, um, you know, violence against people with disability. And um, I think this is part of the whole issue. And it's certainly a lot of the um, testimony that people gave to the Senate back when they were doing the hearings. What sort of... what? what why do you think we, that we don't hear much about this or or it doesn't really get covered in the in the in the mainstream why why are we not here why are we not hearing about any of this sam um i think there's a whole range of reasons i mean the easy conclusion to jump to would be that a lot of people don't give a shit um am i allowed to say that word on your radio you just have Oh, good. Okay, good. Andy, <laughs> you can sleep that out later, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but that's—I mean—that's the easy assumption to jump to. It's um, that you know we're othered. We call it othering, and people don't regard us actually as people. Um, there's some misconceptions around, um, you know, the fact that um, we're, we're people, and that you know the idea that. Carers, for example, you know, parents and families can't be responsible for violence against us because they're martyrs and saints. And you know, um, disabled people are abused by families all the time. Um, you know, probably at the at a higher rate when it comes to things like filicide than than other people. So most carers aren't those people, um, but it certainly happens. So there's some real misconceptions around um, around what happens with disability violence. And I think because we're so segregated and isolated as well, you know, people really don't have an insight into what happens in their lives. Disability is very much siloed and people don't sort of can't see into the way that people live. And they have, for example, no idea that many young people live in nursing homes, that people are routinely abused in service settings. And I think most people, to be honest, would be quite shocked if they knew the way that disabled people lived, um, but that information is just not out there. Well, Samantha, Samantha, is that what are some of the ways that um, when a person has a disability, when they are abused, um, what can they actually uh, do about it? Um, at present, you know, each state is different and some of the um, ideas that are in the NDIS safeguarding framework I think will be of benefit to other people. Um, part of the issue is getting disabled people to actually recognise, you know, what abuse looks like, especially if you've been abused all your life. Um, things like financial abuse is really common. Um, you know, if you've been um, sexually abused in institutional settings, you, not, you might not recognise that, you know, that this is a crime. And um, 
I think part of the work is actually just to make sure that we're not segregated and isolated. We don't routinely get thrown into special schools or institutions. We've got family and friends around us. We have people who will notice if we're missing or hurt or, you know, that that something's gone wrong in their lives. And I think that um, idea of developmental safeguarding where we've got people around us is probably going to be the most effective thing that can happen. What In terms of... I mean, the government has virtually quashed the idea of a Royal Commission. Is there any other way that we can highlight what's going on? Um, look, I think um, there's quite a discrepancy between the um, response to what happened at Dondale, you know, for example. So there was, um, I don't know if you saw the coverage, there was a young man who was um, tied in a chair in a jail in a juvenile justice centre with a a spit hood um, fastened over his head. And the whole of Australia was quite rightly horrified that this would happen to a child, you know, that this child would be abused in this way. And, you know, this is something that happens routinely to disabled people. You know, this is something that... um, People are routinely restrained and subject to restrictive practices and, you know, abused in lots of different ways. And those stories have constantly been brought to light, you know. So um, out of the stories that we've collected, which include deaths and rights and, you know, all sorts of terrible things, there's probably 800, I think, that we've got in our database. So I think the idea of bringing stories out to light... um, you know, to try and attract public rage and to to put pressure onto politicians, I don't think is working. I don't think going to the UN is working and, you know, saying that we're breaching the torture convention. Um, so, you know, I guess one of the things that we can possibly do in service settings is to start looking at um, people who are in charge in the same way that we would with occupational health and safety so that when somebody... Um, in your care dies or they get raped or something really serious happens to them, then the chair of the organisation or the CEO of the organisation goes to jail for five years or they have a $600,000 fine, which is what happens under health and safety legislation. And I think if you start making people accountable and you give them those same, um, you know, those same expectations um, as as other people have, I think, um, you know, watch things change. I think it'll change really quickly. Is, it, is there a reluctance to, to act when it comes to people with disabilities and, and this type of uh, you know, violence and sexual abuse and, and neglect? Um, on behalf of the service providers, certainly, you know, that they really don't consider themselves to be responsible except in a risk framework. And, of course, they're, you know, covering both sides with both hands very firmly. Um, the other um, side of it when it comes to refusing a Royal Commission by government is um, the issue of redress. You know, that I don't doubt that by the time the current Royal Commission um, finishes up that there's going to be a lot of people who are um, saying to government, look, you're responsible for years and years and years of abuse. So if you're looking at the prevalence of abuse in the Catholic Church, and some of that was against disabled people too, um, you know, you, you think of the um, number of people with disability who have been institutionalised and the, the issue of redress, I think, is a huge, huge, huge issue. And 
also, well, not with dress specifically, but a number of people suggested that from from a from a victim from a victim's point of view, it's good to have something like a royal commission because because it feels that that they feel as though finally they're being heard and it it's sort of helps them heal in a sense. So so Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, and, and that idea of being able to tell your story and to and you know, get the people who are you know, essentially the perpetrator, even when it's not an individual perpetrator, um I think that is a healing thing, you know, that especially if you don't have access to justice, that this is something that um, might give people some sense of completion. You know, families as well as people with disability, um, part of the big issue is just feeling powerless and not feeling like you have a voice at all. Um, and, you know, I think I think this is something that would really make a change for a lot of people in starting that journey of healing. And hopefully we won't have to wait as long as... Um, some of the people waited uh, for a royal commission under the current royal commission. So, is there is there any other is there any other groundswell for for other sort of um, other thing other things apart from a royal commission to, to happen? Is that the only vehicle that's open to us? Uh, there were thirty recommendations in the um, in the Senate report. Um, some of them were quite low level and can be implemented straight away. I think some of them are proposed to be enacted in the safeguarding framework. But I think there's a lot of things that you know that we can do as a community as well. I think some of the issue is that we tend to um, put everything on government, and you know, as you know, it um, depends on the government who is in as to how good they are and how much they care. Um, but I think, you know, that things like just making sure that we start to eliminate stigma against disabled people and we start to um, care about other people in the same way, you know, that you would every other person. I think, you know, that's a really key part to making sure that people um, are safe, you know, that in the same way that other people are safe and also starting to make some moves towards ending segregation and isolation, closing institutions, closing special schools and making sure that um, disabled people have the same rights as other people. And you've also got people... Our guest tonight is Sam Connor, who's a disability advocate who has been um, instrumental, I'll say, in helping the Rook, helping or in um, really dealing with the Rook uh, really um helping with the royal commission the Senate, in the royal commission that, that or the Senate inquiry and trying to get the royal commission that wasn't into uh, disability abuse and neglect now sam also what about people who are workers within the industry who act as whistleblowers should they be protected uh absolutely and um you know, it depends on which state it is as to how good whistleblower legislation is. You know, it's it's really a state-by-state state thing. Um, I've been in court um, in the last few weeks with a whistleblower who um, is in court on an industrial 
relations issue. Um, after this person blew the whistle, um, you know, they were fired uh, for a series of misdemeanours and after being relatively untrained. And, you know, um, this person was um, thrown into um, into a situation as an untrained support worker with six people in a group home with um, high support needs. And, you know, so... So, so these, you know, so there were some administrative breaches, and then, you know, she's been fired because of that. And I think, um, you know, people being penalised is actually a, a really big issue. Um, Gerald Butler, um, you might have seen the Four Corners expose about um, a woman named Jules Anderson who was um, abused in a Urella uh, residential facility, and. The guy who was the whistleblower, Gerald Butler, um, has had to move to Western Australia because he couldn't find work in the disability support industry in, in Victoria. Um, not only that, at the same time that um, the police were getting him to testify against Urella as a whistleblower, he was also being prosecuted by the Victorian police for sending a document um, from his workplace after his employer hadn't, hadn't listened and sent it to the parent of the person who was abused and he was being prosecuted for, you know, <laughs> breach of confidentiality and some other things. So so the the idea that people are too scared to be whistleblowers is absolutely backed up by fact. It's a really big issue. Well, Samantha, what type of training would you suggest for people to work with, a dis- with people with a disability? There's a big push at the moment to make sure that all um, support workers are trained. It's a push by the union um, and also a little bit by the Nation- by National Disability Services, I think. Um, most disabled people that I've spoken to, unless the person has exceptionally high support needs or medical needs, actually say we prefer not to have trained support workers um, because, you know, each person is individual and you need to train people to support your own support needs. So, for example, um, you know, if you have a spinal cord injury, um, there's few people who have the specialist skills in actually addressing that person's individual needs and working with people with spinal cord injury. So, you know, the, clearly we need to have police checks. We need to make sure that people are safe. We need to make sure that people, you know, people generally have minimal qualifications, three or so. Um, but a lot of us have spent a lot of time around um, Cert 3 classes and the type of information that they deliver is very basic. It doesn't involve human rights. So, um, yeah, so I think human rights training is probably one of the most important things that people need to get. And there was also, um, I think, maybe even the Bolfi Divas from Western Australia may, may have suggested that um, for Intimate duties, perhaps um, f- female support only female support workers could be used because, um, well, that would go go some way to re- to reducing abuse. Yeah, and I think more importantly than that, because some people prefer, you know, not the same gender. Um, some people, you know, it's down to people's preference, um, but certainly having a choice of of you know, the gender of your support worker is a really important thing, um, especially in in places where you be, you might be a person who doesn't use spoken language and you couldn't report abuse, you know. So um, quite often women are routinely um, put on um, uh, contraception of some sort. They get 
the Gecko Provera shot in group homes so that your uh, menstruation is suppressed and that kind of thing. So, you know, the chances of you falling pregnant are also, you know, and that being a way to be disclosed, which is awful, um, is is also kind of not an option. Um, behavioural issues when people um, have been abused and can't report things through spoken language that they communicate by behaviour are quite often medicated. You know, people are medicated because they say, oh, well, they're having challenging behaviours. So, yeah, there's some really serious issues around around those things, I think. Um, Getting back to, to service providers for a minute, do, they, do you think... There is a culture within service providers where they can adequately deal deal with abuse if it's reported to them. Uh, that depends on the state on the state system. I think um, we did some work in Western Australia last year. There were some fairly serious issues where um, you know with the particular system that we had that you could the provider could do a serious incident report and sit on it indefinitely. And the only, um, I mean, it's really an arrangement between the funder and the disability service provider. So the only requirement for action was that the the provider would have to say, okay, well, we need to make a plan about how we're just going to make sure this never happens again. And so the provider would just sit on the report, um, sort of write an action plan, um, send that through and say, well, we've just worked out how we're never going to do it again. And, of course, the person with a disability is not anywhere anywhere in this, neither is the family. Um, they're people who are not part of this arrangement, which is a financial arrangement between the and a compliance relationship between the funder and the provider. So I think the main issue is that, um, you know, they don't actually see this as being their responsibility for people's actual safety. They see this as being their core business and they just have to meet their compliance issues. So that's part of the culture of, of um, service provision, I think, that's problematic. Well, um, just, we might just uh, one last question. What, what, if you could tell the government, I guess, or t- tell the government one th- thing to help deal with uh, disability abuse, ne- neglect, and uh, s- sexual assault. What w- what would it be? I think it's imperative that we hold a royal commission because I think giving people with disability and families their um, the chance to actually tell their stories is going to be imperative in resolving abuse issues. And until we actually make that happen. Um, you know, it might cost money, but it's not going to cost as much money as it is to as it is long term to keep resolving issues when they happen and the collateral damage that's happening to um, to disabled people every day. You know, this is a more costly exercise, so they really just need to um, suck it up and get on with it. Very good. Well, talking about sucking up and get get on with it. Sadly, we're, we're sadly out of time, Sam. But thanks very much for for joining us today and uh, sorry about the the uh, time difference there which I mugged up <laughs> no problems at all Finn. take care it's good talking to you cheers that was Samantha Connor who is a a great disability advocate in Western Australia and does some does some uh, good work within the uh, se- sexual abuse uh, space so 
Uh, what, what, any any last thoughts there, uh, Raphael? Well, it's that one of the things that is clear, because of the NDIS, it's uh, no royal commission, that would be about 1% of people with a disability um, would be covered under that particular style of legislation by not actually having it. So 99% of people wouldn't be covered by it who had a disability. Yes, that, which really isn't, which really doesn't bode well for, um, well, it doesn't bode, bode well for people with disabilities at, at all. Anyway, we could talk about this all night, but Tamil voices are up next. So, so w- what is our... The track we're going out on, Raphael. Well, firstly, we will be back on the 29th of March for the second show for the fifth week of the month. And the day after g- my birthday. And, and we are going to go out with a song which aptly uh, describes Samantha Kiner, the Erin Brockovich of the disability field. <laughs> Nothing stops the warrior. Lady MJ, warrior. Stay tuned for Tamil Voices. Nice. See you guys.